Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Sefa, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about your new book, The Light Ages, which unpicks many assumptions about the medieval period. So the Light Ages, opposite to the Dark Ages. What's the original preconception of the period that you're you're trying to demystify? Yeah, I started from the position that I myself, when I started learning about the science of the Middle Ages, thought, along with everybody else, that everybody in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat and that essentially they knew nothing and had very vague, mystical, mythical conceptions of nature based on superstition and religious dogma. And then when I was doing my own PhD on it, I realised that was really very far from the truth and that science was practiced really with great enthusiasm and ingenuity and innovation in the Middle Ages. And it was that that I really wanted to bring to a wider audience. What sort of dates do you cover? Because obviously the, the Dark Ages, the Light Ages, the medieval period is quite broad. Yeah, the Middle Ages, as I'm basically understanding them, are 500 to 1500 AD. And I focus mainly on Europe and Western Europe, which of course misses out a huge amount of development and interest, but Europe and and the Christian world was hugely influenced by other countries in this period, so uh, my book does bring those in as well. But above all, because what I wanted to do was make the science of the period accessible to a general audience, I tell it through the life of an English monk who lived 
from about 1350 to about 1400, and his name was uh, John Westwick, or John of Westwick. And so by focusing on his life, the book inevitably focuses on the later Middle Ages, the 14th century above all. But I do bring in changes, innovations and ideas from across the entire medieval period. So who exactly was John of Westwick? Because he was part of St Albans Abbey, wasn't he? Part of the monastery there. Yeah, I mean, if you've not heard of John of Westwick, that's fine and normal. And uh, several people have said to me about this book, you know, are you trying to make John of Westwick into a household name? Do you think we should all have heard of John of Westwick? And that's absolutely not the point of my book. John of Westwick, for me, is a kind of everyman figure. Uh, It doesn't matter who he is in a way. What matters is that he's one of many people who practiced science and who made their own tiny incremental contributions to the development of scientific ideas. So in many ways, he was a typical monk. In many ways, he was also slightly atypical because he had this adventurous life where he got exiled up to uh, Northumbria into a clifftop monastery at Tynemouth. Uh, He went on the ill-fated Bishop's Crusade of 1383 to Flanders, where the entire army got dysentery and they had to abandon the siege of Ypres, which was a friendly city anyway, so they shouldn't have been besieging it at all. And so he, he has this kind of adventurous life, but he also does really interesting astronomy. And, and for me, he was a way to make the science accessible for a general audience. But he himself was, was not a particularly important individual in the history of science. But precisely my point was that so much history of science is written as this parade of great men. It's always men, of course, in these stories. And just suggests that science only proceeds through these isolated geniuses who are trumpeted as being ahead of their time. And I kind of wanted to show how science was part of culture in the Middle Ages, how science fits into literature, how science fits into art and architecture and music and and every aspect of medieval life. Yeah, it wasn't as as polarised as you might think. So, for example, my next question was that monasticism or religion and science feel polarised now when we think about think about it and think about the history but how was that different in the 14th century yeah i mean that's a really important point for scientists today any scientist that you ask whether they themselves are personally religious or not would say that science is a religious you know it pays no attention to religion religious belief is neither here nor there and Really, it's the opposite in the Middle Ages, that science and religion are absolutely intertwined. So one thing that you absolutely mustn't say is that science and religion were in conflict, that somehow religion blocked or impeded the progress of science. In fact, what the church, insofar as it really had any control over what people were doing at all, insofar as the church had an influence, it was promoting science. It was encouraging people to study science. And the reason for that was that for Christians in the Middle Ages, their number one goal was to get closer to God, was to understand the mind of God. And they believed that as well as understanding God through reading scripture, they could also understand God through reading the evidence of God's creation, because God's handiwork was all around them, they thought. And so if you understood nature, then you could get closer to the mind of God. So for them, studying nature was a devotional activity. It was a way of trying to understand God. And this was a world in which 
you know, in principle at least, God could play an active role. So every time you saw something in nature, you got a little bit of an insight into the way that God worked. You know, when people were looking above all at life sciences, above all at animals and plants, they saw clues of God's plan for mankind and creation in the world around them. And is that why monasteries are actually sort of thinking institutions? They weren't necessarily places that people might suspect today to be filled with, you know, constant about prayer. And obviously there was that aspect to it, but they were people who were studying, they were learning and they were creating. Yeah, I mean, monasteries are places of advanced education as well as religious activity and prayer. And above all, of course, the main purpose of their study and their work was producing religious texts, was studying theology. But as I've said, theology and science were not opposites. In fact, of course, science comes from the Latin word scientia, meaning knowledge or a system of study or a subject of study. And theology was therefore a science. And the uh, sciences as we think of them today were were sciences. So in a way, there's no distinction between studying nature, studying nature and studying theology. So monasteries are, are perfectly suitable places to do that. And of course, often monasteries were wealthy. Monasteries had educated people in them. They had the resources and the capacity to teach uh, willing students. They often had large libraries. Uh, and when the universities were founded in the 12th century, monasteries were not particularly quick to take advantage of the education offered by universities because they didn't feel there was a need initially. Uh, But later on, they jumped on that bandwagon and they maintained close relationships with the universities. Above all, places like St Albans, where, where John Westwick was a monk, had an extremely close relationship with Oxford University sent many of their students to study at Oxford, uh, brought books to Oxford and back from Oxford. And so the monasteries and the universities developed this kind of close relationship and um, depend upon each other in different ways. And so what were the beliefs and uses of astronomy in the 14th century? Astronomy was in many ways the the first really systematic science, and it's also the science that links everything together. So The basic conception of the world is that everything is connected, and so the heavens and the earth, although they work in different ways, are connected together. So everything that happens in the heavens reflects uh, what happens down here on earth, and that includes humans, because humans are seen as a microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. So you can read what happens to individual humans in the heavens. So astronomy is both kind of mathematically quantifiable, it's observable. You can observe the motions of the heavens and the stars. You can observe the uh, patterns, the cycles of the sun and the planets, and you can quantify those. You can measure the angles and you can make scientific models to predict their positions. But you can also say that astronomy has an effect on people's lives. So just as the sun warms the earth and the moon affects the tides, so it was thought the planets could also affect health and the weather. And if they affected people's health, then they could also affect people's moods. If they affected people's moods, they could also affect people's behaviour. And you can kind of see how astrology begins to seem a very plausible part of science. And so astronomy is linked with medicine uh, and it's linked with other sort of slightly more dubious or more doubtful bits of science like uh, astrology and magic. 
So yeah, so astronomy is, is really central to the sciences of the Middle Ages, but it's based on this idea that the heavenly motions are circular and permanent and constantly recurring, whereas down here on Earth, everything is changeable and corruptible and subject to decay. And you get to handle some of the most fascinating instruments from astronomy. So what is an astrolabe? Right, yeah. So an astrolabe is a kind of medieval smartphone, I like to say. And it's like a smartphone because it replicates the functions of a whole bunch of different instruments, different computers, which existed in other forms, but the astrolabe puts them all into a neat, convenient little package uh, about as big as uh, the palm of your hand or sometimes as big as, let's say, an open hardback book. Uh, so they vary enormously in size, but an astrolabe is usually made of metal, made of brass. Sometimes they can be made of wood or parchment, uh, but the ones that survive, of course, are the, the ones that were more durable, made of, made of metal. And I'm just going to grab one so I can have it here in front of me, and you uh, you might be able to hear me rattling it. Uh, and it's a little brass disc, and it fits in the palm of my hand, and it looks in many ways like a clock face, and that's no accident, because clock faces were based on these instruments. And with an astrolabe, you can tell the time, you can find the direction of north, or if you're interested, you could potentially find the direction of Mecca, because these instruments really were developed based on ancient Greek principles but developed in the Islamic world. You can find the height of a building, you can find uh, how long the day will be from sunrise to sunset, or you can find when a certain star will rise. It could help you identify a star in the sky. So it's really a kind of multifunctional object, just as our smartphones are a communications device and a camera and a computer and a GPS. So this also has many, many different functions. But again, also just like smartphones, there's a sense that a lot of the people who used them didn't use them to their full potential. Just like the person who just takes occasional pictures on their phone and puts them on Instagram. There are lots of people who owned astrolabes who didn't really understand how to use them. And they essentially had them to show off. Uh, they were status symbols. And an astrolabe in the same way is, a, is an art object. It's a status symbol. It's something that people have to show off uh, and impress their friends. And some of the people who owned astrolabes were physicians as well. There was a, 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 a law passed in Paris in the 1420s uh, that said that all physicians had to have an astrolabe as a way of, of making sure that their astrological calculations were accurate. But astrolabes kind of become a symbol of expertise in the same way you might see a consultant walking down the halls of a hospital with a stethoscope around their neck as a kind of symbol of their authority, if you like. And they, yeah, and you were saying the symbol of authority, they're incredibly popular, especially amongst the, the elite and the wealthy. Yeah, and part of culture as well, all right? Chaucer yeah. writes about the astrolabe. Chaucer wrote a manual for an astrolabe. John of Gaunt, as we've discussed before, he commissioned one. Yes, indeed. So other than the astrolabe, what sort of technology was being advanced during this period? And also, you know, architecture as well. I mean, we talk about this being the Dark Ages, but actually there was so much architecture emerging cathedrals and churches and castles, but also, yeah, the technology that would be needed to create that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a sense, and it's not wholly unfair, that science and technology were slightly separate in the Middle Ages. So while you can say that there was 
uh, there were huge technological developments in things like ploughing and crop rotation and cranks and milling and the, the engineering necessary to build the cathedrals. Those don't necessarily lead to great understandings or developments in the understanding of, of physics and engineering that you might expect, that kind of science was quite philosophical and quite theoretical uh, and technology was quite artisanal and perhaps not grounded in in kind of theoretical understanding. But of course there were those impressive technological uh, advances and there were also some that definitely were based on scientific knowledge or or perhaps the science was being built up that would later lead to technological advances. So I'm thinking, for example, of the development of lenses and the understanding of the physics, the optics uh, that was necessary to make use of lenses for magnification, lenses that would ultimately lead to the telescope and the microscope. Now, in the Middle Ages, for most of the Middle Ages, the technology to produce really good quality glass wasn't quite there. But certainly the first spectacles, the first eyeglasses, were developed in the Middle Ages. And the kind of understanding of optics was being refined that would ultimately lead to to the invention of the telescope at the beginning of the 17th century, and and then later the microscope. So that's, that's one example. The mechanical clock is the paramount example, really, and that's one where engineering and science do absolutely go hand in hand. The understanding of uh, machining and producing really accurate cogs with accurately divided teeth uh, to be able to make an accurate clock, but also the development of escapement mechanisms so that the clock keeps good time. I mean, in the early days, of course, they weren't as accurate as one might want, but the development of really intricate and advanced astronomical clocks that tell you, you know, three different kinds of time and tell you the positions of the planets, can can show you the tides and the phases of the moon. Uh, that was a feature of the later Middle Ages too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. What about um, cartography and navigation? How does that develop? And I know you're a keen sailor yourself, and I assume that you've used some of these original forms of navigation. Yeah, cartography, mapping and and navigation, that's a really interesting subject in medieval history, history of science, because there are different levels of kind of understanding the world that almost coexist simultaneously. And so, for example, medieval people understood very well empirically how the tides are related to the moon and they had very you know perfectly accurate or sufficiently accurate for their purposes rules of thumb about where the tides would be and how high the tides would be and where the currents would run in relation to the phase of the moon and yet 300 years later Galileo the great Galileo was still arguing that the tides were unrelated to the moon and that the tides were actually caused by the spin of the earth like kind of bathwater sloshing so you know the again this this sort of disparity or this separation between empirical understanding of the people that use this knowledge, in, in this case sailors, and the kind of philosophers who are who are trying to understand it at a, at a theoretical level. And in the same way, or perhaps a similar way, there's a kind of disjunct between people who use maps as travel guides for the mind, aids to contemplation of the world. And so the world is a sort of frame for understanding God's plan, and then the people who use practical maps to get from A to B. There are different maps for different purposes. In a way, that's the same as it is today, right? So my kids have got these children's atlases that have, for each country, the outline of the country, and then inside the country, they have pictures of the people wearing traditional clothing and pictures of little landmarks and pictures of the kind of food they eat. And it's a little bit similar in the Middle Ages. You've got maps like that where they're perhaps not, as we would say, cartographically highly accurate, but they are evocative. And so they are guides to travel in the mind, if you like. They're they're supposed to evoke the wonders of nature and the excitement of the world that perhaps you can't get out there and see for yourself. But then there are also maps increasingly in the Middle Ages which are very accurate guides to ports. And they start off often as kind of the sort of sketches that sailors might make for each other of, you know, how to get from A to B and how to anchor in a in a harbour where it's the safe part where your anchor's not going to drag or, or you know, where you're not going to run aground. And then these develop into more detailed and wider ranging maps. Uh, and one key part of that is the increasing use of the magnetic compass from about the 11th, 12th century used increasingly systematically and refined as an instrument that it can be relied on. And then you start to see compass roses on these marine charts. So people are really starting to use these charts as tools to enable them to go out of familiar waters. Because while navigators were quite used to sailing out of sight of land, you know, typically for much of the Middle Ages they were they were plying the same routes over and over again and, and not perhaps exploring very widely. But increasingly in the later Middle Ages, they do start to explore and the compass uh, and better techniques of mapping are a key part of that. So despite all of this advancement in the 14th and then into the 15th century, it was 500 years later that there was the period of the Enlightenment. How do you think that the 14th and 15th centuries, the Light Ages affected that later scientific development. Did you see? Do you see similarities? Things that have been carried through, or, or not so much. 
Well, I mean, uh, there are certain similarities. Certainly the desire, human desire to understand the world, to find explanations for things, to measure things is always there. And we can see that in all ages. There are clear differences. And I think one of the things that's typically taken to characterise the scientific revolution, so-called scientific revolution of the 17th century, was an increased acknowledgement that old ideas were wrong and new ideas could be good. Because until that point, the basic understanding for, for much of the Middle Ages and well into the Renaissance was that the tried and tested was the way to go. That unless you had a good reason to mistrust what you had inherited from your forebears, you should go with that because it's what had worked for everybody in the past. And in a way, the longer an idea had been believed, the more likely it was to be true because surely somebody would have come along and disproved it by now if it weren't. And that's the kind of basic understanding, right? And then what we see really in the 16th, 17th and, and into the kind of Enlightenment is this idea that actually new ideas might be better and that new ideas are obtained by experiment, by experiencing the world around you and not just experiencing it in a kind of a passive way, but interrogating it by looking at the world and trying to find its its secrets, trying to test its boundaries, its limits uh, and the rules that the world operates by. And that's kind of what grows into what is typically called the scientific method. And that is a, a development I suppose of the of the Renaissance and, and into the Enlightenment. And of course what we see as the Enlightenment wears on is this idea that perhaps the world is is a predictable place, that you shouldn't get hung up on God and that God and science have to be kind of seen as separate. And these are things certainly that somebody in the Middle Ages wouldn't have recognised. But, you know, I think the the desire to improve and the desire to refine ideas and the desire to learn about the world around you, to learn from other people, is absolutely a human constant. Some of the things that are associated with the Enlightenment, like you know, a, a drive for religious tolerance or kind of internationalism, acknowledgement of our common humanity, these things that are often held up as being, quote, Enlightenment values, were absolutely present in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, uh, people in the Middle Ages were absolutely keen to embrace ideas from all different places. There was intolerance, but of course there still is intolerance today. And uh, and I think some of these things which are called enlightenment values could equally well be said to be medieval values. So of all of the discoveries that you point out in the book, there are some of the more sort of outlandish ideas as well that, that come up. What was what were some of the more amusing or obscure anecdotes that you that you discovered in your research? I mean there are so many there are so many fascinating ideas. I think a lot of them are stories which people in the Middle Ages told, which if you interrogated them and said, is this really true? I mean, they'd probably look at you a bit blankly and say, well, does it really matter? Because a lot of stories that were told in the Middle Ages are kind of moral fables, and the truth or untruth of them is is kind of neither here nor there. I mean, there's an example that is told by Alexander Neckham, who was a Augustinian monk in England in the 12th century, about a dog which is able to sail uh, and accompanies his master by pulling all the ropes for him on his sailing boat uh, so that he can travel single-handedly by sea. And you might think, well, this is 
clearly nonsense. But the point that's being made here is that the man who is on that sailing boat is being unwise, is being rash, and you should really uh, not take that kind of a risk. So in a way, the fact that the dog is is not really there or not really doing the sailing work that is being attributed to him is not as important as the kind of moral lesson uh, that's behind it. Uh, Now, of course, there are lots of sort of silly ideas or ideas that we today would think are a bit far-fetched about the properties of certain plants or animals. There's a great story about beavers, which is that beavers were hunted. Well, in fact, it's very true that beavers were hunted for their glands, not their testicles, although the medieval illustrators often confuse the two. They were hunted for, for their anal glands. And the myth went that beavers, yeah, when, when, when hunters were approaching them, the beavers would cut their testicles off, throw them at the hunters so that they could, you know, the hunters would get what they wanted and then the beaver would get away. And then if another hunter came along and tried to chase the beaver, the beaver would rear up on its hind legs as if to say to the hunter, look, see... Uh, I don't have any testicles, so it's not worth your time. Just go and find another beaver. Um, and these are kind of myths that, that get passed around. Um, but again, for, for Christians in the Middle Ages, the really important point here is that the beaver is a moral lesson for us. The beaver says to us, you know, if the devil is coming after you, you've got to get away from the devil. And the way that you get away from the devil is by cutting off and casting away your sin. And so that the testicles of the beaver are like the sins of humanity. And just in the same way, unicorns which uh, you know a mythical beast did people seriously believe in unicorns yes they probably did but in a way it doesn't really matter the point is about unicorns is that unicorns could be captured by taking a virgin woman taking her into the forest making her sit down in the forest and then a unicorn would come and put his head in her lap and this was like Jesus who humbled himself the unicorn normally is extremely fierce and scary but the unicorn humbles itself by putting its head into the lap of a virgin just like Jesus humbled himself or God humbled himself by uh, descending into the womb of a virgin so again the unicorn is a kind of allegory for Jesus and that's the more important detail uh, much more important than you know whether it really is literally true that you can capture a unicorn in this way Gosh, if only we sort of spoke in allegories and fables a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> oh probably we, we probably still do in many ways thank you so much Seb that was fascinating and what is your book called uh, my book is called The Light Ages A Medieval Journey of Discovery or if you're listening to this in the USA it's The Light Ages The Surprising Story of Medieval Science And it's full of stories like this, full of the life of John Westwick teaching us uh, what we can know about nature just by using our eyes and looking around us as uh, medieval monks did. And um, where are you on? You're on Twitter, um, etc., aren't you? Where can people follow you? I am on Twitter at Seb underscore Falk. That's it. Okay, (laughs) I felt like you were going to follow him, but no, that's 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 great. Thank you so much, Seb. That was that was brilliant. That was really interesting. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.